Actually, Jesus had been teaching for a while, <clears throat> and uh, he had a group of 12 guys that followed him around the countryside. He was teaching and molding, showing, modeling, proving, making sense out of Old Testament, New Testament. It wasn't the New Testament yet. He was the New Testament. Bringing the word of God to life before their very eyes. In the midst of all of this, he was approached one day by a Jewish mom, Mrs. Zebedee. Mrs. Zebedee came to Jesus and she said, Oh, Jesus, perhaps you remember me. I'm Mrs. Zebedee. You know, my husband, Zebedee, he's, he's partners with Jonah, Peter's dad. They, they fish together. You know them, don't you? I, I don't know why a guy named Jonah went to work on the water, but he did. And, and, and anyway, anyway you, you know my boys, <laughs> James and John. Now, James and John are behind her kind of like going, standing behind mom. <laughs> <clears throat> Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I know them. Oh, they're so full of energy. We call them the sons of thunder. I mean, they got the stuff. They're so enthusiastic. They got to be the best of your best. And I got a, I got a, 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 a little favor I want to ask you. Would you do this one little thing for me? Please, Jesus. My boys, they're good boys. They're smart boys. They're energetic, hard workers. Why, they're already in your little inner circle. We all know you got that inner circle. When you come into your kingdom, I just, just all I want is just a little thing. Would you grant it that James and John would be seated on your left and on your right in the new kingdom. Okay, that's like asking the president to make somebody vice president. This wasn't a little thing. <clears throat> Jesus looked at her and he says, that's not my job. It's not mine to give those positions. Besides, I don't think you know what you're asking. James, John, hmm? Hmm? Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Sure, sure, right, Mom? Sure, we can do that. Jesus said, <laughs> yep, you're gonna. You're gonna drink the cup that I'm gonna drink. It wasn't water, by the way. As a matter of fact, interestingly, James was the first of the 12 to taste that cup as he was killed by the sword by that ridiculous puppet king in Jerusalem. And John 
as far as we can tell, was the last. There's the left and the right for you. Kingdom, being sons and daughters, seated in the heavenly places with him, and all of that stuff gets us excited and happy. We sing our celebration songs and, 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 and burst into, into praise and laughter and dance. And it's not wrong, but are we looking at it all? Are we seeing the whole picture? You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. 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 You want to be a disciple of Jesus? Yeah. How do you become a disciple of Jesus? I mean, if you had a manual, how to become a disciple of Jesus? I'm sure the Baptists must have that book somewhere, don't they? <laughs> how to become a disciple of Jesus? Step one. What's step one? What is it going to say under step one? Uh, pray a prayer. Jump into water. Clean up your act. What's step one going to be? Maybe we ought to ask Jesus, what's step one? Jesus. Okay, I hear you. I want to be a disciple. Step one. Well, we got a clue already because somebody read my text for the communion meditation. And I didn't tell him. So maybe the Holy Spirit wants us to pay a little attention to this passage. And he said to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must first deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So what's step one? Not everybody at once now. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. We live in a culture saturated with the theme of indulge yourself. Whether L'Oreal is telling you that you're worth it, or McDonald's is saying you deserve a break today, or the car company knows that you really deserve some luxury, or this, or that, or the other thing. We have a culture that is saturated with self-gratification, self-indulgence, the absolute opposite of self-denial. And it has us in a grip that is so interwoven, almost at the cellular level, that we, we, we can't seem to break free from it. 
and it, it permeates your job, your home, your relationships, your church, your relationship with God. It just gets in there and stains the very fibers of the warp and woof of your existence. And it's a stain you cannot clean up yourself. We indulge ourselves. I, I know of no sin. I have yet, I have yet to find it. I've been looking. I, I've asked people all the time. Can you, can you name, and no one yet has, can you name one sin, whether a sin of commission or omission, one sin that is not an exaggeration or a perversion of a natural appetite of the flesh that God gave us for the survival and thriving of this species. There's original sin for you. It's the fleshly appetites given by God for good things, co-opted by the enemy, exaggerated and perverted and focused inwardly to indulge ourselves. We indulge ourselves at every level. <clears throat> we control ourselves. We control ourselves. We control ourselves. We control ourselves. And then, boom, we lose it. And we, we cuss somebody out. We yell at them. But it's understandable because what? You took enough. You now deserve the right to vent that. You can now indulge your hatred and your anger and your flesh. It's okay now because you were good enough up to a point, and gee, no one should have to go past that point. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not in the Word of God. The Word of God tells us that we must deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily to follow Him. And it is a daily struggle. It is a, a struggle that goes on moment by moment in your life to not be number one. They've been telling you to be number one. The environment of the university tells you to be number one, take care of you. <clears throat> much, of, much of the psychology world is telling us to focus on ourselves and, and, and to take care of ourselves first. Our jobs, our, 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 our paychecks, our benefit plan, all of that, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. I can disguise it, it's about my family. But that's really about me, extended into my family. <clears throat> it grabs us at every level. It grabs us, it grabs us, Timothy mentioned this morning, the ministry. It grabs you in your ministry. I've been there, folks. I've been there when, all for God, I wanted to be the most successful minister ever. I wanted to be a successful writer. I wanted to be a successful singer. I wanted to do all these things that kept me in the, in the spotlight for the sake of the kingdom, mind you, not me. Well, that's bull. Because <laughs> it's about me. It's always about me. Paul called us to be living sacrifices, and you've heard me say it before. The trouble with living sacrifices is their incredible tendency to crawl off the altar. Because we're living, we're infected. And the, the thing is, it's subtle. Because God made us to survive. To survive, to procreate, to take care of, of us and our families. Because that's life. That's him. He's creative. He's... 
He told us to subdue it, not to be subdued by it. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross. When the, when the brothers, see, James and John weren't the only ones. Actually, that really kind of cropped out of their standard argument. comes up at least a half a dozen times throughout the gospel. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Well, you know, I think uh, I'm pretty good. I'm all right. <clears throat> I'd, I'd do a good job as his right-hand man. My little brother could be left-hand man. <clears throat> Jesus says, that's not the way it is. If you want to be part of my kingdom, he says, become like a child. Not be childish. That's not what he meant. Childlike. Big difference. Little change in the word. Big difference. We got a lot of childish Christians in the world. <clears throat> but childlike? What makes a child childlike? What's he talking about? He's talking about dependency. He's talking about surrender. He's talking about unabashed enthusiasm. <clears throat> He's talking about innocence. He's talking about dependency for the knowledge that you need and the wisdom and the guidance that you need. It's not, a, it's, it's, it's not an argument against spiritual maturity. He's not talking about that. He's just talking about that heart, that central part. How do you do that? How do you do that? There in Matthew 20, where he tells the story of Mrs. Zebedee and the boys, he goes on to talk about, about the greatest among you will be the servant of all. The first shall be last. That comes up half a dozen times again in Scripture. It's so hard for that to soak in. Because in a self-indulgent culture, we're all about being in control, being in charge, being you will respect me. <clears throat> I, most of you know that I'm, I'm working, I don't know why at my age I'm working, but I am at a group medical practice. I have about 100 employees who look to me for leadership. Well, not all of them look to me for leadership, but a good portion of them do. And I've tried to teach them that my organizational chart doesn't look like most organizational charts with me up here and then my, my administrative team, then their department managers, and then the people actually doing work. <clears throat> no, my organizational chart goes like this so that the people who are doing work look to their supervisors for the resources they need to be successful at their job. And the supervisors look to the administrative team to have everything they need to be successful supervising their people so that they get the job done. And my administrative team can rely on me to support them with what they need to 
be able to lead their supervisors who are managing the people and eventually the work gets done. Let me tell you something. They say it's lonely at the top. Well, it can be oppressive at the bottom. But it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. This church is led on a servant leadership basis. The elders of this church don't feel that they are over anyone in this congregation. We just want you to succeed as disciples. We want to provide what you need. Jesus spoke about these things in the harshest of terms sometimes. You know, this is one that this is one that bothered me. Got my screen going to sleep bothers me. Um, this is one that bothered me for uh, longest time. Sorry about that. I thought I'd left a tab open on this. I will be right with you as soon as the internet catches up. <clears throat> yeah, I know. Be a while. How about this? Jesus said uh, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them. Now we're getting down towards later in his ministry. And he turned to them and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yeah, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I mean, does this sound optional? What? Hate your family? What does that mean? First of all, we have to understand that we use the word hate differently today than it was used in New Testament times. We would use hate as not putting first. It's, It's not about animosity. Today we say hate like, well, anybody disagrees with me is a hater, right? No, hate just means there's something more important than you. But it's still a strong word. It's a strong word. Loving God in such a way that it looks like you hate your family. That's a whole lot of love because I've got, I've got news for you. In case you haven't noticed, I really, really love my family. Why does he say things like I've watched people struggle against family to believe. And sometimes it's more powerful than all of the fleshly appetites rolled together. But it interferes, it stops, it stops the disciple process. It puts something else in front of Jesus. This all started, by the way, with me quite often this time of year around Lent. Um, Not that I was even, (laughs) actually, I I was raised where Lent was like a foreign word 
for people of certain denominations. <clears throat> and uh, and I, I was quite well along in what passes for adulthood in my life when I discovered the benefits of observing Lent. And uh, you may have noticed that the last couple of years in my life have been challenging, to say the least. And, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this year and, uh, and Resurrection Sunday coming and uh, the remembrance because of the calendar, something a little bit more than our Sunday to Sunday, you know. And I, and I, I became convinced that I, I needed to fast. Now, I'm a veteran faster. <clears throat> Not a faster veteran, but a veteran <laughs> faster. And uh, I've done some pretty long ones, and so I was, I was cranking up for a, what for me would be a major fast. And uh, so <clears throat> then everybody else, let's start on Ash Wednesday. Sounds like a good idea to me. Ash Wednesday found me on an airplane going to a big conference in Florida, um, one of the major activities of which were meals. And I, I don't want to fast out loud. I, I don't want to be in a situation where people are diving into their filet mignon with the cabernet sauvignon in their hands and saying, why are you just staring at me, guy? <laughs> well, because... I'm fasting <laughs> for the sake of the Lord. Can't do that. I can't go there. <laughs> Not to mention the fact that Jesus prohibited that. So <clears throat> I said, okay, all right, all right. I'll start next week. It's okay if you write it down. Next week came. We had, we're trying to recruit some new physicians at our practice. We had a candidate in town. Well, you know what you do when you have a candidate in town? You whine and dine them and convince them that this is the best place on earth to work and live. We did, by the way. She's coming next year. <clears throat> and I'm not going <clears> to... <throat> okay, all right, all right, all right. Come in next week. The next week we had... I had two more business dinners that just were unavoidable. And then the next week, we had another candidate in. And, and I cried out to God, I'm sorry, I really wanted to do this. I, I, really, I really beat myself up pretty good on that. <clears throat> all, I could think, all I could think about, here, all I could think about was, was Jesus looking at his inner circle sawing logs on the night before he was going to be crucified. And he said, just one hour? You, you, you couldn't pray with me one hour? We'll come back, we'll circle back around to that. <laughs> and so in the midst of this, the whole teaching of the New Testament, self-denial just bubbled up and I 
I started reading all of these passages and thinking about all that I've read and heard. And I pulled out a classic. Well, my classic is in my Kindle now, but I pulled out a classic by one of the greatest Christian minds of the 20th century, a Lutheran minister by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book that was actually a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he titled it The Cost of Discipleship. And like right after the New Testament, everybody should read the first several chapters of that book as he talks about costly grace and cheap grace and the fact that in all of history, the founders of all the great religions of the world, only one said, come after me, you die. Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Not the greatest recruiting strategy I ever thought of. You know, it's like, we act more like, we act more like the military. Military doesn't talk a lot about getting shot at when they're trying to recruit kids, right? They talk like, you know, GI Bill and camaraderie and in travel and jumping out of helicopters and doing cool stuff that's worthy of a Red Bull commercial. And, <laughs> and people try to kill you. <laughs> don't, don't mind that. That's, that's not likely. It's not likely. We, we're, we're recruiting people for war. And we're talking about our retirement plan. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and, so, and so I found myself struggling about this and then struggling with self-denial at every turn in my life, every corner, every moment, every little thing, every little decision, every little attitude, everything. All of a sudden, it was in my face about self-denial. I found myself, my son, <clears throat> I'm going to tell a story about my son. He should be used to it. I've been doing that since he was born. My, my son, this, this, this wonderful tax season, enjoyed the government giving him back the money that they borrowed with no interest. We call it a tax refund. It's not a tax return. Please don't say, what are you going to do with your tax return? You file your tax return, you get a tax refund. Okay, just remember that. I'm just, you know me, I'm kind of the grammar Nazi of the church. So he got his refund. And he got a new bass. It is gorgeous. It plays like basses are supposed to play. Although when I play it, it doesn't play like it does when he plays it. <laughs> and he's my kid. I'm proud. I'm glad. I'm happy. I did an absolute woo-hoo when I saw the bass. <clears throat> But it got me thinking. There's a guitar that I'd like to have. It's a, it's a hollow body arch top with a cutaway, mellow, jazzy, gorgeous. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's made by one of my favorite guitar companies. It's a French Canadian company, French Canadian company called Godin. And they have this beautiful guitar called Fifth Avenue, and it's better than a. $3,000 Gretchen. 
<clears throat> so I started looking. That's where I started. I was going to get into Google, you know. And I looked at the music stores. So, well, that's a lot of money. Even cheaper than a Gretsch, but still a lot of money. Yeah. And then it struck me. I don't play all seven guitars I already own. Why do I need an eighth? <laughs> Just because it's different. And I began to wrestle with self-indulgence, self-denial. There's no way that buying that guitar would be anything but self-indulgence, pure and simple. And yeah, I can afford it. So, all right. <sighs> Past that. I wonder if Reverb has a used one. <laughs> oh yes, they do, half price. Red, transparent red. It was, a, it was a floor model, it had a ding, that they had to like take a magnifying glass to show you in the picture. Ah, half price. That's only half as guilty, right? In the midst of all of this, God's talking to me about self-denial. And I'm drooling about a guitar I don't need. The fact that I can tell you the story, you know the ending. I've, I've, I beat it this time. I win. But... It, it, it strikes me that these things just, right, as, as I'm contemplating self-denial and what that means to take up my cross daily, that, that, that the enemy is going, hey, 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 did you see this? Did you see that? Did you see those? Don't you want this? Don't you want that? Make you feel good. It'll satisfy you. You'll finally be happy with eight guitars, even though you don't play the seven that you have. Spiritual warfare is so much more than uh, asking God to, you know, not let the tornado come to our town. We, in fact, spiritual warfare, you know me, I like to, I like to take aim at all uh, uh, extra-biblical terminology. Spiritual warfare is not found. Prayer warrior, spiritual warfare, those terms aren't in the Bible. So what we've done is we've, we've created these concepts and we've systematized them, and we've we said, this is what it is. And I hear people say, I was doing spiritual warfare over somebody. Well, I don't even know what that is. I mean, honestly, I don't. Because <clears throat> spiritual warfare, I can't do your spiritual warfare, Trace. Spiritual warfare is something going on in you. I can pray for you. I can be a listening ear. I can give you any word of wisdom or knowledge that, that the Lord sends to you through me. I can be a faithful friend. I can forgive you if you screw up. I can love you the whole time. But I can't do your warfare. Jesus had a spiritual warfare. And you know, interestingly, some of the most heated battles where we know for sure he was wrestling with Satan was in the midst of him struggling with denying himself. What's the first encounter that's recorded for us? What's the first encounter with Satan recorded for us? 
in the desert, in the wilderness. <clears throat> Luke brilliantly places that. And here's a problem. We, sometimes, here's some free advice. When you're studying the Word of God, you've read this much, read this much. And you'll understand this much better than you would if you only read this much. Okay? In, in, in Luke chapter, chapters 2 through 4, <clears throat> 3 through 4, 3 opens up with the story of uh, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And what, what was the big deal for John the Baptist when Jesus presented himself? He kind of heard and saw something. Come on, it's okay to answer. What did John see when Jesus came to him? He saw the heavens open, the Spirit of God descending like a dove. See, you knew the answer. You're trying to make it too hard. And he heard a voice saying what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I don't think John needed much more convincing after that. Well, then, then Luke goes on then to tell us the, the genealogy of Jesus. And he says, in there he says, and as was thought the son of Joseph, as was thought. Here's the whole genealogy. But Luke already told us who the father is. Then the very next thing we find is Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to pray and to fast for 40 days. What was he doing? Just something to take up some time? Was it springtime? Maybe it was Lent. What's he doing out there? I think there's a clue. Because actually, the gospel writer says he was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And he came at him with three temptations. First temptation, change the stones to bread. Second temptation, jump off a pinnacle of a temple and watch God take care of you later. Third temptation, I'll give you the whole world if you just bow down to me. I think it's John A.T. Robertson that came up with this first. But he looks at that. It wasn't about Jesus being hungry from fasting, although it certainly was a good situation for the Satan to speak into. But it had more to do with how he was going to be God's son on earth. When Satan says, if you're the son of God, he didn't mean, I don't think you are. He's saying, if you're the son of God, here's what you ought to do. You turn these stones to bread, they'll follow you anywhere. If you're the son of God, you make a big splash in the temple, a big religious scene, they'll proclaim you as Messiah. And, and you're the son of God, look, you bow down to me, I'll step out of the way, you can have the whole world. It was about how he was going to be the savior how he was going to do his ministry. Was he going to take an economic route with the loaves of bread? Was he going to take the religious route in the temple? Was he going to take the political route with all the kingdoms? No. You see, he was trying to steer Jesus away from the cross. That whole uh, idea that, that uh, Satan laughed when Jesus went to the cross and wept when he found out why. Baloney sauce. He spent his whole ministry, the whole time of Jesus' ministry, trying to steer Jesus away from the cross.
And then as a punctuation mark, that passage is bracketed by Jesus showing up in his hometown and the people listening to him and going, oh, doesn't he sound nice? And this is Joseph's kid. He's just a hometown boy. It's just wonderful. And then when they figured out what he was actually saying, they decided to throw him off a cliff. Because he couldn't possibly be some God. You see, that whole passage, those whole chapter, two chapters hang together beautifully. Wilderness temptation. Matthew 16. <laughs> Peter. Jesus says, uh, what are they saying about me? No, oh, we think you're Elijah, one of the prophets. Some people think you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. You know, you think. And Peter, with a revelation from God, says, why? You're Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, who flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And upon this rock, this fact, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not three paragraphs later, Jesus begins to get serious about where he's headed. Look, I'm going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be taken captive. I'm going to get beat up. I'm going to get crucified and killed. And Peter, his new champion, who got him a nickname that went along with his confession, <laughs> says, no way. This certainly will not happen. And Jesus looked him in the eye. And what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Wait. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Get behind me, Satan. We got two very different messages here. Because now he was not speaking for the Father. He was speaking for the enemy. But he didn't say, get, get away from Peter. He said, get behind me. Because it was an attempt on his determination. In Gethsemane, a night of anguish as he wrestled with his final commitment to taking that cup. Folks, we, we don't short sell what was going on in Jesus' mind that night in Gethsemane. We, we sometimes make him so otherworldly that we forget that he was a man facing a, an anguishing death and the torture and the rejection and, and completely totally unjustified, as unfair as life ever gets. And he just wasn't too crazy about that. He said, Lord, if there's another way. But he also ended with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the decision was sealed. And he was on his way to Calvary in think it was done then? What happened when he was actually nailed to the cross, suspended between a heaven that seemed so far away and an earth that had rejected him? There he is. And what does he hear from the, from the mouths of the humans that he was instrumental in creating? Others he could save, but himself he cannot save. Show us something. Come down from the cross. You don't think he was tempted at that point? 
Dallas Holmes thought so. He wrote a song, go ahead, I'll show you. I don't think that was what was on Jesus' mind. <clears throat> I've taken a long time, I'm sorry, to set this up. <laughs> Paul wrote in Philippians 2, he said to the church, to stop, stop looking after your own stuff. Let others go ahead of you in the church. He says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he quotes what we think maybe was a praise song from those days. Who? Being in his very nature, God. Can't even wrap my head around that. Considered this godness something not worth clinging to. But instead, he emptied himself to become a man. Not just a man, he took on the form of a servant. Oh, not just a servant, but he suffered and died. Oh, not just death, death on a cross. Cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. It's a spiral. The right hand of God, he released it didn't cling to it. It starts this descent. Man, servant, death, cross to the very pit of all existence. <laughs> Therefore, God has given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father, our attitude is to be the same as he who let go of his godness. Self-denial at its pinnacle. What does self-denial look like in real life? Be a great time for a PowerPoint slide, but I'm going to let you PowerPoint your own brain. Answer this question. What does self-denial look like at your job? When things just ain't fair. What does self-denial look like driving in Mississippi traffic? What does self-denial look like when there's only one burrito left on the <laughs> breakfast table on Sunday morning? What does self-denial look like when, when it seems like what mom said just doesn't seem fair? What does self-denial look like when your spouse asks you for just one more thing and you've given everything you thought you had? What does self-denial look like when you angrily want to tell somebody what you're thinking? but it's not for the benefit. What does self-denial look like at Walmart? What does self-denial look like? What does self-denial look like when you're surfing the web? You may be thinking I'm talking about pornography, but I'm not just talking about that. There's lots of stuff on the web that's gonna hurt you as bad as pornography will. Some of it we call social media. Some of it we call Amazon.com or uh, Reverb.com. 
I know, all the time. It's that, it's that, it's that hissing voice of a serpent who said, God did say that you need all that stuff. And this one, this one little thing you can't have. Did he really say that? Is that what he really meant? He said, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Well, he couldn't have meant that, especially not for American Christians. What does self-denial look like in day-to-day living inside these hungry, thirsty, horny meat bags that we call home What does self-denial look like? How do we get to where Paul cries out, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Now, lest you go out of here burdened with guilt, let's go back to Gethsemane. And Jesus looked those guys snowing away. Couldn't you wait just one hour? And he rose. <sighs> Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What that tells me, first of all, he didn't kick them out of the disciples' club. Secondly, he recognizes the struggle that we're in. And he brings all-sufficient grace to us, not cheap grace. It doesn't excuse the sin. It pardons the consequence. It pardons the punishment. It justifies the sinner, never justifies the sin. That's costly grace, as Bonhoeffer describes it. I would leave you with one thought, and I'm going to ask Johnny to close, because I don't know what I'm supposed to say now. In sun-warmed sands, along Galilee's shore, and upon Judean hillsides, among the crowds who sang his praise as through Jerusalem streets he rides. But Jesus' paths led elsewhere, to a place called Gethsemane, and to a rugged cross he bore up a hill called Calvary. So these words of Jesus remind me that should I want to be saved, there stands a rugged cross between myself and my empty grave. He said, don't start to build if you can't make the cost. Don't go to war if you can't stand the loss. You say you'll follow me, the cost is high. For when I call a man to me, I bid him come.